0: All right, let's open in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time to gather together to worship you, to sing about and to think about your greatness and your glory and your love and your grace for us, Lord. Uh, We pray that you would bless this sermon, this teaching, Lord. We pray that uh, you would use it to give us understanding and to to refine our understanding. We pray that we would get to know you deeper and be more in touch with your plans for your people. We thank you for your grace and amen. All right, so today we're continuing our series called the GCF Vision. Um, Again, the vision, or the GCF vision, is a term that we use a lot, but we really haven't had a thorough teaching on it in a while, or not since Greg was teaching in RCF, at least. So in this series, I try to explain concisely, yet thoroughly, what exactly the GCF vision is. Uh, I've broken it down into five parts. So, uh, the GCF vision is that there are certain aspects of Christianity that God wants Christians to rediscover and restore. And there's five of them. The first one, having a biblically complete understanding of, experience of, and presentation of the gospel. Uh, Number two, being grace-based rather than performance-based. Number three, being reformed and charismatic, which is the one we're currently on. Number four, understanding the role, relevance, and responsibilities of the church. And number five, having a victorious eschatology. So we're not at all saying that there's no churches that have these things. There's plenty of churches that do well at one or two of these things, and other churches a different one or two. But sadly, very few churches at the moment have all five of these. But we believe that that's something God wants to change. So, um, so we've been on point number three: being reformed and charismatic. And last time I spoke, we finished a subsection of this series that we were calling The Strengths of Reformed Churches. So we took a look at, um, you know, what it is, what I mean by reformed churches and what their strengths are. And those are strengths that we should emulate or seek to copy. So now we're going to start a subsection of the series called The Strengths of Charismatic Churches. Uh, I'm going to try to explain what I mean by a charismatic church or what a what charismatic church culture is, and we're going to examine the strengths of charismatic church culture. Um, So I would define charismatic, again, it's easier to define with a list of qualities than with an uh, objective description. So there's certain qualities I would think of when thinking of a a charismatic church. Um, Holding to continuationism rather than cessationism. That's what we're gonna look at today. Receiving the baptism in the Holy Spirit emphasizing, pursuing, and experiencing the gifts of the Spirit, Uh, participating in spiritual warfare and deliverance, and having a a general culture of worship, prayer, and expectation, and emphasizing worship and prayer, and having greater expectation for what God's going to do. So we're going to examine those. Each one will probably get its own sermon in this series. But today we're going to be looking at uh, holding to continuationism rather than cessationism. So let's start out by defining those terms. What is cessationism? Cessationism is the idea that the gifts of the Spirit, such as speaking in tongues, prophecy, and healing, ceased with the apostolic age. So like when uh, John and Paul died and the apostles died, spiritual gifts ceased. That is the idea of cessationism continuationism is the idea that the gifts of the Spirit have not ceased and that they will continue on until Christ's second coming. So I believe that cessationism uh, is an unbiblical idea and that it hinders the church by keeping people from seeking the gifts of the Spirit as God would have us to. But anyways, in this sermon, first we're going to examine some common arguments for cessationism, and then we'll look at some arguments for continuationism. And I, I hope to make it clear why I would think it's worth thinking that um, continuationism is biblical. So let's examine that. Let's start by examining the arguments for cessationism. So I've got seven of them, but the first one and the last one are the same. Um, but that's because I feel that it's so central uh, to cessationism. So the first argument uh, that we're going to look at for why one would think the gifts of the Spirit have ceased, they must have ceased because we don't see them. Uh, I believe that that's the chief underlying reason behind all the other reasons of cessationism. We're going to look at a number of supposed reasons why the gifts of the Spirit would cease, but the Bible does not anywhere explicitly teach that the gifts have ceased. And it, most cessationists will readily admit that the Bible doesn't explicitly teach that they have ceased. So the question must be asked, why argue for cessationism at all? The reason people would argue for cessationism is because they don't see gifts of the Spirit in their own lives or in the lives of others around them, and therefore they seek to find a biblical reason why they don't. And that in and of itself is not an unreasonable thing to do. That's worth considering. That's You know, why don't we see more gifts of the Spirit in modern America? That's something we should think about. But as we look at each of the next arguments, I want us to keep in mind that the underlying reason for why cessationists think that the Bible ought to be interpreted these ways is because they don't see gifts today. That's the reason behind the other reasons, I would say. Uh, If cessationists saw the gifts of the Spirit regularly being used, there would be no reason to try to interpret the Bible this way. But we'll address that further at the end of, uh, towards the end of the sermon. And I'm going to play my hand a bit early and say ahead of time that the reason many modern American Christians don't see the gifts of the Spirit today is because we don't seek them and we don't have faith for them. But... We'll get to that more towards the end of the sermon. So that's the, the first um, argument for cessationism is they must have ceased because we don't see them. Let's look at the next argument of the common arguments for cessationism. Uh, the second common argument for, in support of cessationism would be uh, the idea that 1 Corinthians 13, eight through 12 says that the gifts are going to cease. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 12. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So this text does talk about, um, you know, prophecies passing and tongues ceasing, but the question must be asked, When? When is this passage talking about? What is the timeline? Um, It talks about when the perfect comes. I would argue that it's clear that the perfect has not yet come. Because he says when the perfect comes, we will know, as in we will know God fully, even as we have been known. I don't know about y'all, but I don't know God fully as I've been now. (laughs) So in verse 9, he says, For we know in part. And then in verse 12, he also says, I know in part. So those two things are related. So in verse 8, when he's talking about when tongues will pass away, we should relate that to verse 12. So the then, when they will pass away, when the gifts of the Spirit will cease, is when we know God perfectly, even as we have been known, and that will be after the second coming of Christ. Some people would argue that this passage is talking about the completion of the canon, but um, as for the reasons we just looked at, I believe this can't be talking about the completion of the canon or the finishing of the writing of Scripture. Not only that, but Paul says that when the the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. They had the scriptures in part. They had the Old Testament. They just didn't have the New Testament. And the canon's been finished, but the Old Testament didn't pass away. So this can't be talking about the finishing of the scriptures. This has to be talking about uh, the culmination of the kingdom after Christ's second coming. So I can understand why people would uh, see this verse that way, but after examining it closer, it can't be talking about the uh, gift ceasing when the canon got completed. It has to be talking about Christ's second coming, because I don't know anybody who knows God perfectly as well as he knows them. So that is the second argument of the common arguments for cessationism. The third argument uh, is that the gifts were only for the apostles, and therefore they passed with the apostles. So some people believe that spiritual gifts were for the express purpose or the only purpose of validating the apostles. Let's look at one of the reasons they would think that. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. But the first reason why I would say that this argument is invalid is because in the scriptures, Christians other than the apostles frequently exercised spiritual gifts. Let's... uh, Let's give some examples. Stephen. Stephen exercised miraculous spiritual gifts, and he was not an apostle. Let's look at Acts 6, verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Also, uh, Philip's daughters, Philip the evangelist. Let's look at Acts 21, verses 8 and 9. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and we stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. I don't think they were apostles. Let's, you know, the Corinthians exercised spiritual gifts. Let's look at First Corinthians 14, verse 18. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. He's not saying this because they didn't speak in tongues. He's saying this because they did speak in tongues but they weren't apostles. And it wasn't just tons either. Even the more miraculous gifts, like signs and wonders, were given to average Christians. The gifts of healings and workings of powers were distributed among average members of the Corinthian church. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 11. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. to another, working of miracles, to another, prophecy, and to another, the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another, various kinds of tongues, to another, interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who appoints them to each one individually as he wills. So it says these gifts are distributed among each, It doesn't say tongues and prophecy are distributed among each, but miracles of healings, those are only for the apostles. Miracles of healings, gifts of healings, are included among the gifts that get distributed among everyone. We also see that the Galatians uh, exercise spiritual gifts. Let's look at Galatians 3, verse 5. Does he who Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So the idea that the gifts were only for the purpose of validating the apostles or proving that the apostles were indeed apostles and were indeed sent of God, that cannot be The express purpose of them, because throughout the scriptures, throughout the New Testament, we see Christians who weren't apostles exercising spiritual gifts. Not only that, but the Bible teaches that there are also other purposes for spiritual gifts. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 14, verses 3 and 4. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. And the one who speaks in a ton builds up himself, or edifies himself. But the one who prophesies builds up the church. So Paul here is talking about purposes of spiritual gifts, encouragement, consolation, edification, building people up spiritually. But those are purposes that aren't just validating the apostles. These are purposes that would make it make sense why the Spirit gives gifts To Christians in every church, because the purposes are for the building up of the church. So the idea that the gifts were only for apostles is invalid, it's not compatible with Scripture. The fourth argument I want to examine, the fourth common argument for cessationism, is that gifts were only for the early spreading of the gospel. And again, I would say that this is clearly just an attempt to reconcile the experience of modern American Christians with the scriptures. This is not something that a person would think the scriptures teach unless they're looking for a reason to not see miracles today. Because the scriptures don't at all imply that the gifts were only for the early spreading of the gospel. You could only arrive at that by looking for it. And so there are a few arguments, um, sub-bullet point arguments, behind why people would argue that the gifts were only for the early spreading of the gospel. And uh, we're going to look at a few of those. The first one is the idea that you know, the gift of tons was so that they wouldn't need translators. But that's an invalid and uh, illogical argument. Let's examine why. Um, You know, they had language learning back then. We might think that they didn't, but language learning has existed for a long time. Probably not long after the Tower of Babel. So let's look at a... For one thing, Paul spoke Greek and Hebrew, because language learning was common in Paul's day. It was common to speak more than one language. Let's look at Acts 21, verses 37 through 40. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian, then, who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, in Greek, because he was asking him if he speaks Greek, so Paul replied, in Greek, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Sicilia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, Mentioned, motioned with his hand to the people, and there was a great hush. And then he addressed them in the Hebrew language. It's clear that even on the day of Pentecost, when tongues were first distributed, that all the people there who all spoke different languages had a common language because they were talking to each other, saying, oh, wow, look, we can all hear them in our own language. How did they talk to each other? It's because they spoke Greek. But language learning goes back even further than that. Let's look at Genesis uh, 42, verse 23. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. So way back in the first book of the Bible, Joseph and his brothers, when Joseph is in Egypt, they had language learning. There were Egyptians who learned Hebrew. There were uh, Israelites who learned Uh, the language of the Egyptians. Language learning has been a thing for a long, long time. And it's arrogant of us if we think that we as modern people have language learning and they didn't back then. So the idea that tongues were primarily for the purpose of not needing translators is frankly ridiculous. Not only that, but Greek was well known in the days of Paul. Greek was well-known by people who didn't have it as their first language. After the Hellenistic colonization of the known world, Greek was spoken from Egypt to the fringes of India. Because Alexander the Great conquered a lot, and then people got to learn Greek after you get conquered. Not only that, but another reason why, um, you know, tons weren't just so people went to need translators... Language learning is still a need today. So if a person's going to use that argument to say, well, this is why the gifts cease, I would encourage them to think about language learning is still a need today. Missionaries regularly have to learn new languages, and that's no different from how it was in the first century. There are still plenty of tribal languages in remote places that you can't simply learn in college because they're in very remote places. And not only that, but as we... Looked at a few seconds, a few moments ago in 1 Corinthians 14, tons are for spiritual edification. The one who speaks in a ton edifies himself. Tons were not given for the purpose of translating the gospel. And even if they were, that would be no reason to not need them today. So that's an invalid argument. Another argument that gets given for why gifts were only for the early spreading of the gospel is that gifts, uh, some of the gifts, signs, and wonders were for the purpose of confirming the gospel. And that's true. Uh, Let's look at Mark 16, verses 19 through 20. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Let's look at Hebrews 2, verses 3 and 4. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And lastly, let's look at uh, John 4, 48, and 14, 11. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And then later in John, in chapter 14, Jesus says, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves or on evidence of the miracles themselves. So signs and wonders are, are for conf, uh, confirming the gospel. That is one of God's purposes for them. So that, that part of that argument is valid. But my big problem with saying that gifts were only for the early spreading of the gospel just because signs and wonders were to confirm the gospel is we still need that today. Why would we only need it in the first century but not today? If signs and wonders were evidence to believe in God in the first century, they're evidence to believe the gospel today. We could use uh, the. It would be useful for us, the church in America, to have signs and wonders for the confirmation of the gospel now more than ever. Unbelief is everywhere. People don't want to believe in God because they don't want to believe that anything non-physical could exist. So the idea that gifts were only for the early spreading of the gospel in the first century is an invalid and impossible idea. Let's examine the fifth common argument for cessationism. Uh, The fifth common argument being the idea that we no longer need spiritual gifts due to the close of the canon, or because the scriptures have been finished being written, we no longer need spiritual gifts. Um, And people who would use this argument are mostly probably thinking about gifts of prophecy and maybe words of knowledge or words of wisdom. But the fact that the scriptures are completed and the canon is closed does not in any way diminish the usefulness of or the need for the gifts of prophecy or words of wisdom or words of knowledge. The fact that I have the complete scripture does not mean that the gifts of the Spirit would not serve me. I have great need for them. All Christians have great need for the gifts of the Spirit. Frankly, this idea is a little ridiculous. You know, the Bible being complete doesn't mean that I know who God wants me to marry. The Bible being complete doesn't mean that I don't need God to send me people to rebuke me for my sin. The Bible being complete doesn't mean that it would be no use for God to speak to me about my current situation. That would be very useful. There's still need for words of knowledge. There's still need for words of wisdom. There's still need for healings. The idea that because the canon is closed, we don't need spiritual gifts is just outright illogical. It's like saying, why are we called priests as Christians when there's no sacrifices? Yep. So not only is there still need for spiritual gifts, great need, even though the canon is complete, uh, but not only that, prophecy wasn't primarily or exclusively meant for the writing of Scripture. That's kind of an underlying assumption behind this argument that prophecy was primarily or exclusively meant for the writing of Scripture. But Paul says in Scripture that the purpose of prophecy is for the upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Let's look at, I'll read it again in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 3. Um, On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their edification, for encouragement and consolation. The primary purpose of prophecy is not for um, writing scripture. It's also worth noting here that prophecy doesn't have to do with telling the future. It has to do with telling people whatever it is that God wants them to hear, which often has nothing to do with the future. The most common message that Old Testament prophets delivered was rebuke for ongoing sin. So, the purpose of prophecy is not for writing canonized scripture. Let's look at a few reasons why that could not be the purpose of prophecy or the main purpose of prophecy. For one thing, not all New Testament or even Old Testament prophecy was canonized. Not all of it is in the scriptures. Let's look at Acts 19, I mean, Acts 21, verses 8 and 9 again. Uh, On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him, and he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. But I don't think they were writing Scripture. For one thing, their prophecies aren't in the Scripture. Uh, That's the main reason I don't think they were writing Scripture. Let's also look at uh, 1 Samuel 19, 19 through 21. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Naoeth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of prophets prophesying and Samuel standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came on the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again a third time, and they also prophesied. So God was distracting these messengers of Saul, which is a very interesting way he chose to stop them. (laughs) Nonetheless, I don't think they were writing scripture. We don't know what they said. It didn't make it into the scriptures. So the main purpose of prophecy was never Writing Scripture, that has never been the main purpose of prophecy. It has always been just speaking whatever God wants people to hear to specific people. Not only that, but another reason um, the writing of Scripture couldn't be the main purpose for prophecy is that Paul wanted all the Corinthians to prophesy, all the Corinthian believers. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 14, verse 5. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. I don't think Paul wanted all the Corinthians to write scripture. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Again, we see that God's purpose for prophesying is the edification of the church, not for writing scripture. So the idea that we no longer need spiritual gifts because the Bible is complete just entirely misses the point. And it's not true. We still need spiritual gifts. They'd still be greatly useful. Let's look at the sixth common argument for cessationism. Uh, Well, this isn't so much an argument for cessationism in theory, more in practice, Uh, But the idea that misuse of spiritual gifts is reason to not seek them. And I I can understand, um, you know, the reason to think that, but let's examine it a bit closer. So some Christians believe that because spiritual gifts get misused and could be abused, we should be so careful that we should just avoid seeking them altogether. And granted, there is potential to misuse spiritual gifts. There is potential to abuse spiritual gifts. And that needs to be watched out for. Um, People might try to use spiritual gifts to draw attention to themselves or for other selfish purposes. People might try to use spiritual gifts to gain position and manipulate others. Nonetheless, potential for misuse is not a reason to dismiss. I think the best... uh, Example of that, the best case for that, is the Corinthians themselves. The Corinthians were misusing spiritual gifts. But rather than telling them to stop speaking spiritual gifts until they become more mature, Paul corrects their misuse and then tells them they should continue to seek spiritual gifts even more. They were allowing their use of spiritual gifts to make their meetings disorderly. And they also uh, were valuing tons more than prophecy, and there's fair odds that that may have been because they wanted to look more spiritual or show off some miraculous gift. But Paul corrects these two issues, and then he tells them to continue with spiritual gifts and to desire them even more. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 14, 39 through 40. "'So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, "'and do not forbid speaking in tongues.'" But all things should be done decently and in order. So misuse of spiritual gifts is not a reason to not seek them. You know, I would compare this to something slightly similar. During evangelism, I might get tempted to have fear of man and start caring about other people's opinion more than God's opinion. So evangelizing might potentially lead to that temptation. Nonetheless, I'm not supposed to just quit evangelizing because of that temptation. You can't just ignore God's command just because there might be some risk involved. But again, let's get um, to the first argument, which is also the last argument, that spiritual gifts must have ceased because we don't see them. At the end of the day, this is the only real argument for cessationism. But there, there are better biblical explanations for why a number of people don't see or experience spiritual gifts today. I would say there's primarily two reasons why we, a lot of people don't see or experience spiritual gifts today. The first one is because we don't seek them. So Paul told the Corinthians to earnestly desire the greater gifts, which means God. Paul wanted them to earnestly desire spiritual gifts. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 14, verses 1, and also verse 39. Pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. And then he says in verse 39, So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues. The idea... You know, Paul told them to desire it. Why would he tell them to desire it if whether or not we seek it doesn't have anything to do with who gets a spiritual gift? The implication is that God wants us to be praying for spiritual gifts. If whether or not we seek spiritual gifts has absolutely nothing to do and no bearing on whether or not we experience them, why on earth is Paul telling the Corinthians to desire spiritual gifts? It's because whether or not we seek them has a great deal to do with whether or not we will experience spiritual gifts. Another thing worth noting is that uh, Paul says, do not forbid speaking in tongues. Why would he say that? The idea implies that if they were to forbid speaking in tongues, people would probably stop speaking in tongues. But that idea implies that whether or not a person exercises a spiritual gift has something to do with whether or not they choose to whether or not they seek it and step out in faith to use it. So whether or not we seek spiritual gifts has a great deal to do with whether or not we will experience them, else Paul wouldn't have told the Corinthians to desire spiritual gifts. If there was a church that believed that evangelism was only for the first century, they probably wouldn't see anyone come to Christ. If I believed that evangelism was only for the first century and therefore I'm not going to evangelize, I probably won't see anyone come to Christ. And I could from that conclude that the Holy Spirit just isn't drawing people to God anymore. But the real reason I wouldn't be seeing anyone come to Christ is because I'm not evangelizing. You know, this example kind of sounds silly, and it is kind of silly, but to a lot of first century Christians, our lack of experiencing spiritual gifts and wondering why, while believing that they've ceased and not seeking them, that would sound quite silly to a lot of first century Christians. About as silly as it sounds to us that somebody... Is starting to think maybe the Holy Spirit doesn't draw people to a God anymore because they don't see anyone saved because they believe evangelism was just for the first century. They're not that different from each other. So that's the first reason we don't experience spiritual gifts much is because we don't seek them. We don't seek them in prayer and we don't desire them. The second reason is because we don't have faith. Let's look at Matthew 13, verses 57 through 58. And they took offense at him, or they took offense at Jesus. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. And then Mark 6 words it a bit differently. Let's look at Mark 6, verses 4 through 6. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid um, his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. So even for Jesus, who healed by the power of the Spirit, he couldn't do many miracles in places where there was much unbelief. And we have much unbelief in modern America. Cessationism is a self fulfilling belief because it keeps people from having faith that God would do any mighty works through us. And if you think that the lack of faith in Jesus' hometown was bad, just look around you. This is modern America. Modern America's entire worldview is built on our stubborn refusal to believe that anything supernatural is even remotely possible. And sadly, it's greatly affected the church. It's greatly affected each of us. We all grew up being indoctrinated in this. But those who do pursue spiritual gifts and do have faith for them still see them. And we'll get more into that in just a bit. So those are um, seven common arguments for cessationism and why I don't think that they're biblically sufficient. So let's examine a few arguments for continuationism, or the idea that the gifts of the Spirit will continue until Christ's second coming. First off, I would say that it ought to be the default assumption. The New Testament makes supernatural things and the gifts of the Spirit to be normative, to be normal, to be part of everyday life. That's how the book of Acts describes them. That's how the New Testament describes it. And since the Scriptures don't anywhere explicitly say or even um, much imply that God has stopped doing them, to assume that they have stopped is almost to go against the authority and sufficiency of the Scripture. It shouldn't be the default assumption. I can see why you know, we get that, living in modern America and being taught you know, at every corner that the supernatural is just impossible, but that shouldn't be the default assumption. But let's look at uh, two passages of Scripture that clarify the idea that the spiritual gifts are for today. Let's look at John 14, verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do because I am going to the Father. There's no way to come up with any decent interpretation for this passage within cessationism. Cessationism, in practice, just ends up doubting and denying this verse by dint of saying, well, I don't know what Jesus meant, but he sure couldn't have meant that Christians would do miracles by having faith in God. And what the real statement behind that, what's really being said is, we don't know what Jesus meant, but he sure couldn't have meant what he said. But Jesus' words are very clear. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do because I am going to the Father. Let's also look at Acts 2, verse 17. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams in the last days. Are we not in the last days? We are still in the last days and it is still the time for uh, sons and daughters to prophesy and to see visions and to dream dreams. It would be very strange for God to say this at all if for the majority of the last days, it won't be the time uh, to prophesy or to see visions or to dream dreams. So those are two arguments from Scripture for continuationism. But I would also argue that there's arguments from history. Uh, Let's see, we're only two minutes behind. We've got time for this. All right, so I've included with your bulletin, you've got the handout for this sermon, but there's also an outline uh, that Greg put together from a message in his series on the baptism and the Holy Spirit, and that outline references uh, various, some miracles that happened throughout church history after the time of the apostles. They're from the book, uh, Miracles and Manifestations of the Holy Spirit in the History of the Church, which is a book that was compiled, not written, compiled by Jeff Doles. And it's a collection of accounts from other writings and historical sources, um, just accounts of miracles and manifestations of the Holy Spirit throughout church history. Uh, The book features accounts that go as far back as the apostles and go forward up until the 21st century. So I included that outline. We don't have time to read the whole outline, or because the outline is just uh, testimonies. I'm just going to read a brief summary of it. But I would encourage you to check it out if you haven't read it before. Um, so let me read part of it. All right, we're going to start out with some accounts from Augustine of Hippo, or St. Augustine's uh, He had some accounts in his famous book, *The City of God*, which is from 300 AD or about 300 AD. Uh, But he has some accounts of miraculous healings. I also think it's worth noting uh, Saint Augustine was a cessationist back in 300 AD or in earlier in his Christian life. And by the end of his Christian life, he had become uh, a continuationist. He had stopped believing that the gifts had ceased. So this is one account from the city of God. In the same city, Carthage lived Innocentia, a very devout woman of the highest rank in the state. She had cancer in one of her breasts, a disease which, as physicians say, is incurable. Ordinarily, therefore, they either amputate and so separate from the body the member on which the disease has seized, or that the patient's life may be prolonged a little Though death is inevitable, even if somewhat delayed, they abandon all remedies following, as they say, uh, the advice of Hippocrates. This, the lady we speak of, had been advised by a skillful physician who was intimate with her family, and she betook herself to God alone by prayer. On the approach of Easter, she was introduced, instructed in a dream to wait for the first woman that came out of the baptistry after being baptized and to ask her to make the sign of Christ upon her, her sore. She did so and was immediately cured. The physician who had advised her to apply... No remedy if she wished to live a little longer when he had examined her after this and found that she who on his former examination was afflicted with that disease was now perfectly cured. Augustine says later in the city of God, for when I saw in our own times frequent signs of the presence of divine powers similar to those which had been given of old, I desired that narratives might be written. Judging that the multitude should not remain ignorant of these things. Even now, therefore, many miracles are wrought, the same God who wrought those we read of still performing them, by whom he will and as he will. Amen. So this was a manifestation of the Spirit. This is one of the gifts of healing. It's, this account is very similar to someone being healed by the laying on of hands. But let's look at some other accounts. Uh, I hope I pronounced this right. Uh, Cuthbert of Lindisfarne. So Cuthbert was a monk and bishop in um, the 7th century. The 7th century. And he was called the Wonder Worker of Britain. Let's read some accounts about his life. And the miracles that happened in it. By force of prayer only... St. Cuthbert quenched a fire which threatened to commit very serious damage. He also dissipated a fire in the air which the devil had conjured up to deter people from going out to hear him preach. By prayer, he quelled tempests and storms, or he stopped storms. Does that sound familiar? Have we heard of that anywhere? By prayer, he turned water into wine. By his mere presence, he caused an unchaste devil to quit the body of a woman which it had taken possession of. With water, oil, or hollowed bread, he healed divers, sick folk given over by the doctors, some of whom were plague-stricken. By water which he had blessed, he cured the wife of a noble thane who lay speechless and senseless. By sending the girder of a holy abyss called Elphidella, He healed a contraction of muscles and performed many other remarkable cures. And then the last one we're going to read some accounts about is Bernard of Clairvaux. Uh, Sir Bernard of Clairvaux was an abbot at the Monastery of Clairvaux. And uh, he was from, let's see, 1090, the 11th century. Yeah, 11th and 12th century. So let's read some accounts of miracles in his life. When Bernard was seated in the guest house, a certain man, blind with one eye, came in, falling on his knees, begged his mercy. Bernard made the sign of a cross with his fingers and touched the blind eye, and immediately it received sight, and the man returned thanks to God. About an hour afterwards, it was getting dusk, and the holy man went out to lay hands on the sick who were waiting before the doors." The first who was cured was a boy blind with the right eye, who, on shuttering the left eye, with which alone he had previously seen, discerned all things clearly, and told at once everything which we showed him. And again, at the same place, a little girl who had weakness in the feet and had been lame from her birth was healed healed by the imposition of hands, and her mother bounded for joy that now, for the first time, she saw her child standing and walking." So if these testimonies are true, and God does in fact work healings and wonders and even turn water into wine through his people and their prayers, as in the times of the apostles, it brings a lot more clarity to Jesus' words, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do because I'm going to the Father. It makes that verse actually make sense. And if you uh, have doubts about these testimonies, I would encourage you to check out the book for yourself that, um, that they're compiled in. Uh, I included a link to it on Amazon in your handout. And I would encourage you to check it out and examine for yourself if the accounts are historically accurate and whether or not uh, those doubts are reasonable. You know, if you have doubts about these, and I can understand why a person would, you should study it further. Did these people lie about it? Were they just misperceiving the whole thing? Or did these things actually happen? So that concludes my arguments for continuationism. But anyways, I think this is an important issue. Uh, It's not worth dividing over. We are called to have unity as the church of Christ. And um, it definitely isn't on such a level that it... um, You know, is a denial of the gospel or anything, it's not that important. But this is an important issue. Cessationism tempts people to not follow certain commands that are in the scriptures. Paul told the Thessalonians to not despise prophecy, but cessationism tempts us to despise prophecy. Paul commanded the Corinthians to desire spiritual gifts, but cessationism tempts us to not desire spiritual gifts. And Paul told the Corinthians to not forbid speaking in tongues. But oftentimes, cessationism tempts us to forbid speaking in tongues. Because if God doesn't cause people to speak in tongues and a person is speaking in tongues, what are they doing? But Paul said not to forbid speaking in tongues. Cessationism breaks the commands of God for the sake of, you know, human ways, just like the Pharisees did. It denies the commands of God. Not only that, but we have much great need for the gifts of the Spirit today. Much great need. We need them for the confirmation of the gospel. We need healings. It's always good to have healings. It's better to be well than to be sick or to have a terminal illness. You know, we need words of wisdom. We need words of knowledge. We need discernment of spirits. We really need the gifts of the Spirit today. So in conclusion... The supernatural gifts of the Spirit are for today. There is no biblical argument for why they have ceased. The only biblical reason for why we don't experience them is we don't seek them and we don't have faith for them. But in places where people do seek them and do have faith of them, they experience them. Just recently, we saw Anne Moante miraculously cured of colon cancer after praying for her. And if we continue to seek them, and to pray for them, and to desire them, and to trust God for them, we will continue to see them. So let's get to the communion meditation. Christ empowers his church. For today's communion meditation, I want us to think about how part of the good news of Christ is the good news of his empowerment. Let's look at 2 Peter 1, verses 2 and 3. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Christ has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. It doesn't say that he will grant them. It says that he has granted them. We have them now. And that's because the good news of the gospel isn't only about eternal life. Eternal life is a crucial part of the gospel, but that's not the whole thing. Part of the good news is that Christ grants us power now. The power to grow now, the power to conquer sin now, to experience deliverance now, to heal the sick now, to cast out demons now, and to experience his kingdom now. And that's part of why it's important that we understand the gifts of the Spirit are for today. God wants us to experience his kingdom in practical ways, and Christ has granted us all we need for that, and we should seek it and make use of that gift and enjoy it. So let's thank him as we come to the table.